You're listening to the Assembly Call IU podcast and postgame show, the place where Indiana fans across the globe hang out online after every IU basketball game. Join us for our live broadcasts on Thursday nights and immediately following every IU game at our website, assemblycall.com. That's assemblycall.com. This week's edition of Banner Monday is coming right up. Before we get to that, a quick word about tickets from our sponsor, SeatGeek. As you know, getting tickets online can be far too complicated. There are hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability for each of them, so it's hard to know who to trust. But that is why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so that you can easily find the seats that you want for a price you're willing to pay. There is nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Just imagine what the atmospheres at Simon Scott Assembly Hall are going to be like this season. You want to be there. This is a special year with a special roster. You're going to want to get to Simon Scott Assembly Hall, see this team play live, and SeatGeek is the way to go when you want to do that. You know, SeatGeek is actually designed to make the ticket buying experience easier than it's ever been. And they do that by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. So they help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. And every purchase is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. That's why I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and I use it for sporting events, for concerts, really for any type of live event. SeatGeek is the first place that I look for tickets. Best of all, Assembly Call listeners get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. So just download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code ASSEMBLY today, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's promo code ASSEMBLY. SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. And now here's this week's edition of Banner Monday. Welcome, Hoosier fans, to this week's edition of Banner Monday, where we kick off each week by doing what IU fans love more than anything else, talking hoops, IU hoops, Big Ten hoops, and deep dives into basketball strategy and concepts. We do it all here every Monday, and we're happy to have you here with us. This is the second edition of Banner Monday, and it is our 433rd episode overall of the Assembly Call, recorded on the afternoon of Monday, October 29th, 2018. I am your host, Jared Morris. And let's begin this edition of the Assembly Call, how we begin every edition of the Assembly Call, and that is with our Hoosier Proud Banner Moment. And Indiana is the national champion. When it comes down, Indiana will be champion. Smart takes the shot. The Hoosiers have won the national championship. Today's banner moment occurred on Sunday afternoon at Bankers Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, where Indiana took on Loyola Chicago in a closed scrimmage. And while specific details about the scrimmage have not been easy to come by, by all reports and whispers, they suggest the same thing, and that is that Indiana dominated. Now, obviously, you never want to overreact to back-channel reports about a private scrimmage that didn't count, and we won't. But I think we can all agree that hearing the Hoosiers played really well against a team ranked ahead of them in the preseason AP poll is a much better sign than the alternative. So we'll take it and hope that it's a sign of things to come this season when the games are public and the results count. 
Okay, now let me introduce my esteemed co-host for our Monday Mailbag. He is a columnist for The Big Lead, a co-host of The Hangover, and in an era of specialists, he's one of the few sports media members left who is actually worth listening to as a generalist. I pretty much have an opinion on everything. He is Ryan Phillips. Ryan, any opening rants before we pop open the mailbag here and start answering some questions? You're muted, by the way. Which a lot of people probably appreciate, but doesn't work so well for this. No, um, I feel like you mute me, and I, I didn't because no. I would never do that. Uh, <laughs> no, I nothing really for me this week. I thought it was big that we heard that, uh, of course, that the scrimmage went well, and regardless of you know whether it was dominance or whether they won or you know whatever you you're thinking, uh, and whatever the rumors are, I, I think that it's good that there were at least positive reports coming out about it. And that's, that's always a good thing. So that's really where my focus is. Uh, also, I wanted to mention that on Friday when I was guest hosting the uh, morning show at 1090 here in San Diego all week, I got to talk to Dick Vitale on the air, which was just a bucket list moment for me. I've spoken to Dick before, but to actually get to interview him was pretty awesome. And uh, this I, is where I, Andy calls you out for name dropping. I know. Well, that's I usually call you out for name dropping, <laughs> but uh, in this instance, I was, I had, cool, a, I had a question prepared to ask uh, Mr. Vital about Indiana, but we ran out of time and I couldn't slip it in. So I apologize to everybody. I'm basically ranting on myself for not getting an IU question. <laughs> Uh, I apologize to all the listeners who tuned in for that and didn't get any get their fix of of IU hoops. Come on, dude. That definitely no. that definitely gets a come on, dude. I know. Uh, that's cool though, man. Congratulations. It was no, I mean, I you know, and it was there were two of us asking questions, so I couldn't just open with the Indiana question. But uh, Dick thinks that Kansas is number one this year, pretty significantly. So, meh. Yeah, well, that's that's who we picked. <laughs> and, I asked his reasons about it. A big man to that. All right. Well, here's what is on tap for us this week uh, on Banner Monday. We're going to do our listener mailbag, as we always do. Then our Big Ten Roundup with Mike DeCourcy. And then Ben Ladner is back for another edition of Basketball 201. We're going to dive into ball screens more, talk about some other ball screen coverages. And then at the end, I will do a quick opponent preview for Southern Indiana because there's a game this week, Thursday. It doesn't count, but it's still a game. And I know that we're all looking forward to it. So all of that is coming on this edition of Banner Monday. Before we get to that, before we get to our mailbag, I do want to remind you real quick about the best way to shop online for great deals on IU basketball and football tickets. Just remember this URL, iutickets.shop. It will take you right to SeatGeek, where you can immediately find the best deals on IU basketball tickets, other sports tickets, concert tickets, and more. And as a bonus, you can use the promo code ASSEMBLY to get $20 off your first purchase. And when you use that URL, iutickets.shop, we actually get paid a commission for referring you, so it is a great way to support the show. Again, the URL is iutickets.shop. Thank you. All right, Ryan, let's dive into some of these questions. Uh, of course, we take some of the leftover questions from our Thursday night show, and then I put out a call um, in our private IU basketball community for some additional questions, and we got some good ones. Uh, we're actually going to lead off with one of those questions. Uh, I really like this question from Alex. Ryan, he says, what are your top three signs that you're going to be looking for during the early games to project that this team is a sweet 16 or better possibility? And I suppose the caveat is that we're, you know, we're not going to know that that early in the season because so many things can change. But what are those early signs that you look for to say, OK, this team is at least on the right track? Well, I think and, and you marked some notes in our in our little group thing here. So I don't want to really step on what you what you uh, well, you can have. if that's what you believe you can. But number one would be three point shooting and free throw shooting improved, just shooting in general improved. Yeah. I think that's the the main thing. And a lot of that has to do with a development from the guys who are already there and b the new guys coming in. Uh, I think also you're looking at 
just a general chemistry between the guys because there aren't a lot of new guys on this team and i think the general chemistry of guys playing together is is going to be interesting to see right from the beginning because sometimes that takes until say january to develop uh but these guys have been on the court a lot together in the preseason and and in uh you know over the summer and stuff so i'd be interested to see how that develops and i think number three for me is guys who we haven't guys who have been on campus improving and that's Justin Smith and Reese Thompson. How much are they involved and how big can they be for this team? Because if they are, I think that you're looking at, uh, you're looking at a really fast development from these guys. If they're not, if they're not really that far improved, then you're going to look at depth as having to step up and really fill some of those gaps. But I think those two guys are going to be huge. So that three point shooting and just general chemistry particularly chemistry offensively. I feel like this team is going to play well defensively. Yeah. I mean, it goes without saying that we're both taking for granted that Juwan Morgan and Romeo Langford are going to play basically, you know, somewhat resembling an all-American level. So that's, you know, if either one of those guys is, you know, playing significantly worse than expectations, that would not be good. But, I mean, the three-point shooting and free-throw shooting is obvious. I think consistency at point guard, clearly, that's a big question mark we want to see. Some type of advancement there. Yeah, and then, you know, the other thing that I said, I mean, I think you're right on the offense, but I also want to see coherent defense. You know, and not that the defense is going to be perfect early on, but really to see that the gains made last year continue and there will be some hiccups but not just the major major just gashings that we saw Indiana take early last season just to see that things look a lot more solid and then it looks like they've really built on a solid defensive foundation and I think you know (laughs) between the two of us we pretty much covered every aspect that we could Um, but that's really what you want to see I mean this is a team that was mediocre last year had a lot of weaknesses and only a few things to hang their hats on so if you're talking about not only getting back to the NCAA tournament but being a sweet 16 or better possibility there's a lot of things that need to improve so I think those are the major ones and there's probably still um, some more on those, but I think those are the ones that will have the biggest impact. All right, Ryan, here's kind of a fun question here from Josiah. He says, when a blockbuster movie of the FBI's NCAA corruption case inevitably hits theaters, who are your top picks for its all-star cast and crew? Uh, Director, lead actor, actress, and bonus, give the movie a title and a tagline. And this is a hard one to do, like off the top of your head, but do you you have any Yeah, I want yours first, because I see it here, and I really like it. So, yes, I just think it's pretty obvious. You just call it Blue Chips 2. The tagline is, it's still all about money. Um, I forgot to pull my little sound drops up here from, uh, from Blue Chips. but uh, It's about money! There you go. So it's still about money. And then I would say, just let Nick Nolte play all the characters. Like, it's an Eddie Murphy movie. He's everybody. He's Merle Code. He's the defense attorney. He's the judge. He's Bill Self. Like, everybody who's in it, you just let Nick Nolte play them, except for Matt Nover, who plays the role of Brian Bowen. And they switch out $100,000 for a tractor, because that element of Blue Chips needs to stay. That's yeah, what I, I would. Do. I would. I would say like the Wolf of Sneaker Street or something. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. I mean, I can't think of a name off the top of my head. But I, yeah, uh, I think we could get Skeletor to play Rick Pitino. I think you get. No, I. I don't know. I. It, but it would. It, you could. I, let me put it. To be honest, I think you could get a great cast willing to play this mm-hmm. drama because it was so ridiculous and so crazy. Um, but yeah, it's definitely. I think it's it's all about the money, or it's still all about the money. Is a great tagline for that movie. But yeah, off the top of my head, that that's really tough to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is, but it's it's a great question though, and hopefully it is, they it do. It is a great question. I wish I had like a week to ponder that because I'd come up with it. Maybe next week I'll I'll I'll, I'll give my entry. So okay. just, I I will come back next week. I promise. I'll think about this and, and put in a. <laughs> it's one of the only times it. Ryan's ever been stumped and not had a uh, really. An I, on that's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> 
Congratulations to Josiah. Lot, lot there to digest. It's, it's a really well done question. Uh, okay, this is from Jeff. Um, two early games on IU schedule drawing interest. How do you think IU matches up with Marquette and Arkansas? And what will the result from those games tell us about the Hoosiers early in the season? So, you know, Arkansas replaces a lot of people. It's kind of hard to project them. They do have an elite big man in Daniel Gafford, a uh, potential lottery pick. So that's going to be a really interesting matchup um, for Juwan or, you know, whoever ends up matched up on him. And obviously that's a road game. I don't have a whole lot of insight on those guys. You know, from a Marquette perspective, you know, they profile like some of the more frustrating Tom Crean teams where they yep. are elite offensively. I mean, super elite, like, you know, third or fourth in effective field goal percentage. They've got a couple of guys that can shoot 45% or better from downtown. I mean, they are really going to challenge Indiana's perimeter defense with Marcus Howard and a couple of the other guys they have, but they are awful defensively. They were 182nd in the country last year defensively. So, you know, I like Indiana's chances in that game because Indiana projects to be a much more balanced team. Now, if Marquette just goes off and hits 12, 13, 14 three-pointers and Indiana doesn't have an answer, we saw what kind of trouble, even at home, that can bring. But, you know, that's kind of the big kind of contrast of styles there, and you certainly hope that Indiana's three-point shooting is a little bit better. They don't need to outshoot Marquette, but I think they've got to at least kind of, you know, not let the three-point margin be too huge. But I still, I, you know, I like their chances in both of those games. I mean, the Marquette games at home, um, again, I like Indiana's balance in that game. And even though the Arkansas game is on the road, I think Indiana is much more balanced and has more experience than them, which, you know, to me, gives them the advantage early in the season. What do you think about those two games, Ryan? Well, anytime you play a Mike Anderson team, you're going to have it's it's an awkward system to play against because it's that 94 feet of hell or what, you know, I mean, where they they just press you and push you and push you and get you to play fast. It's going to be a huge game for the point guard play to be uh, to really step up. The good thing, Indiana has several people who can handle the ball. It's not going to be all on one guy. Juwan Morgan can bring the ball up if you need him to. I I think that that's going to help Indiana there. Uh, but still, it's an awkward system to play for, especially on short notice. It's one thing when you're in the SEC and you play it twice a year and you get, get to practice for it all the time and you're used to it. it it's tough to pr- to practice for that on you know a short week. So uh, I would say that's going to be really difficult and that's going to fall on uh, Devontae Green, Rob Finnessy, uh, Romeo Langford, just anybody who can bring the ball up. That's going to be a tough game for them. They got to really show some maturity and confidence. Marquette, I echo what you said incredible offensive team shoot a ton of threes saw them in Maui last year and was very impressed with the way they shot the ball but you're right they're a sieve defensively they're terrible and so if you can attack the paint on them and if you know if you can attack the paint it's going to open up the three point line for you so i would say attack the paint attack the paint attack the paint and then worry about hitting shots from the outside You've got to be able to counter that, though, and defend the three-point line. Make make them shoot off the dribble. Make them shoot inside the three-point line. Make them try and beat you in the paint, because I don't think they can. So, really, it is. I mean, look, if, if you face a team like Marquette and they hit 16 threes on you, you're going to lose. So, you've got to defend the three-point line. There's, there's, you know, This isn't a team you dare to shoot threes on you. It's a team you defend the three-point line, make them beat you in other ways. Of course, even if they go off from three-point shooting, they were so bad defending the interior last year, you may just be able to kind of bleed them to death with with layups and free throws. Well, I certainly don't want to give them a chance. (laughs) No, no. But, I mean, they're really bad defensively, so it's going to be interesting. It's it's ironic that they're coached by Wojo, too, who was, like, known as the floor-slapping... You know, head of Duke's defense back when they played defense. Yeah, well, he's taken after his uh, his godfather of a coach and Mike Shashevsky, and uh, not really preaching defense very well. A walking skeleton with a hairpiece. Yeah, that'd be him.
Well, I, I do. I do say some bust out some good lines. On you this do. Show. You do. You do. Uh, okay, this comes from Ben Malcolmson, and then we actually had another question from Derek, and I thought they fit really well together. So Ben asks, what kind of season do you envision for a guy like Race Thompson? Where do his opportunities for minutes come from? And then Derek said, Freddie McSwain popped up in my newsfeed recently because he is now uh, in the G League on, uh, I think, the Canton team. And Derek says, that got me thinking, is there a McSwain-type player on this roster, a guy who muscles the hard rebound over taller players who could take on the role of going out and getting 10 boards when it's needed? To me, you know, I think Race Thompson is a much better overall player than Freddie McSwain. There's no question. I mean, he can shoot the ball. He's got an offensive game. But I think if you're looking for a McSwain-type player in terms of a guy who's, you know, kind of a bench player, can come in and really be tough, get you rebounds, I think Race Thompson is the closest to that of anybody. Jake Forrester would be another guy that you would say, but he actually wasn't a great rebounder in high school. Like, I think he has some work to do on his rebounding. He was also on a ridiculous team, so it took... Yeah, and I think think he will be fine, but I like, you know, if you're talking about who can you... Who would you think would be the you know the first of those guys to go out and get you ten rebounds? I think Ray Thompson is going to be a guy sure. that right off the bat is a real rugged interior player that does some of that dirty work that we got from Freddie McSwain last year. And yeah, Freddie's I certainly moments. think to answer Ben's question, I I don't know what numbers to envision for Ray Thompson again. We haven't seen him that much, but what what I've heard and what I've seen just makes me think that he's going to be an impact guy off the bench, and, and I think his minutes will come from backing up Juwan Morgan really, and playing a similar role to Jawan Morgan, inside out, outside in, uh, a guy who can defend multiple positions, who can step on the floor and shoot it. I don't think that's, like, look, if Race Thompson is standing beyond the three-point line for more than a few possessions, that's not what you want. But he can do that in a pinch, and if he's wide open, yeah, they're going to tell him to take that shot. Uh, But he's an inside-out guy who can do a lot for you. He's big and strong. I, I still, Jared, I still remember when we were on the floor last year when we were in town, and we both looked at each other like, Okay, yeah, he's a lot bigger than we thought. Like, mark your, mark just, your bingo cards, everybody. Yeah, not just height, <laughs> but he's a big dude. Like he, he really is, and he's athletic and can move around. So he is. Uh, I think that's, you know, it's he's a guy who can who can do some things. And we saw in the scrimmage at Uzur Hysteria that he's a guy you got to account for on the floor. So I think he's going to be really good this year. We've kind of all three been predicting that he would be an impact guy since last year when he was redshirting so he's a top 100 I, recruit i mean he was a higher rate yeah. recruit than juan was coming out of high school if yeah. you want you know easy context yeah so. and and he would have been what do you, i think he would have been the second or third highest recruited recruit in this group I after think, hunter with, he would have been yeah, after Jerome so hunter. third and honestly if he had played his senior year of high school he may have been even higher like we don't know because he only played through his junior year so he he might have even bumped up that list uh so yeah i think that 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 those are your that that he's the guy that you would think of in that role, and I do think he's going to be an impact guy right away. He'll be one of the first guys off the bench, I think, for sure in that opener. Yep. All right, this question is from Abe. There's a lot of talk of Devonte versus Rob at the point. Do you think we are overlooking the lineup that features Rob at the one and Devonte at the two? Could Rob facilitate and free Devonte up to become a reliable third scorer? So I think. Romeo Langford is going to play as many minutes at the two, you know, quote unquote, the two as possible. So if you're doing this lineup, it's either going to be kind of in short spurts and Romeo's off the court, or you're going to be playing those guys with Romeo. I don't see that happening a ton. I can see it happening next year. I think Rob and Devante could get a lot of time together, but that's not a lineup I would project to see a ton this year. I guess unless both of those guys are just playing so well, you know, shooting so well that you can't keep them off the court. But I think Indiana will be more likely to go bigger and longer this year 
and use those guys more you know, to kind of sub for each other as opposed to playing them together. We'll see it at no, some I, point, sure, but I don't think it's going to be something we're going to see a lot of. I, I could definitely see the two of them playing together because Devontae... This year? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. I because and, and then moving Romeo to the three, maybe going smaller with like uh, the Justin Smith at the four and, and Morgan at the five. I mean, that's... You know, it, it, it's going to depend on the matchup. It's going to depend on the flow of the game and everything. But certainly, Devontae can play off the ball. We saw that last year plenty. Uh, if, again, if he's bringing consistency. And I don't, again, I don't think that there's a one, two, three positioning with Indiana and Archie Miller. No. I think that it's just sort of three, four perimeter guy or three, four guys who are going to be out on the perimeter doing what they do and one guy in the post. I, I really don't think that there's this devotion to having a, a set point guard and a set shooting guard. I think I think especially if you're playing a team like Arkansas that needs a ball hand that where you need multiple ball handlers. Okay, yeah, I, in, in a game like that I could see it. Yeah. But do you so think, think Archie's going to want to give up that length defensively? I mean that often um, to play those guys together? You like, know, if you have if you have Romeo, if you have Justin Smith and you have Morgan, you've kind of got some solid length and then if you can put the other two on the two guards on the other team, I think you'd be okay. Again, I don't think that this isn't going to be a starting lineup. I right. just think that we could see it certainly for stretches of time. You could even go really large with a lineup like that with those two guys, get Romeo off the floor when he needs a break. Especially, Romeo's not going to play 38 minutes a game. You know, He's going to be off the floor for 10 minutes a game easily, uh, average of 10 minutes a game easily for the year. So you do need to mix and match and figure out ways to score. Devontae can be a lighted up scorer when he gets free, especially on the perimeter. So hmm. I, I think that having two ball handlers on the floor will be fine at some point or two primary ball handlers, just depending on the matchups. But yeah, you will have to make up for that with the guys you have around them. But I, I don't think it'll be that rare. And we know Devontae can fill it up when he gets hot. So uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting. Again, it, we don't know how Archie Miller is going to deploy all this talent. That's the, that's the big question because he's never had this much talent before. <laughs> so how does he deploy it? It's kind of fun uh speculating because we have no idea how he's gonna do it. Been been a whole lot of speculating this offseason. A, a whole, whole lot, lot of speculation. I don't know about you, George uh Jared, but I'm uh I'm hundred percent ready for some games. I'm I'm so ready for games. So ready for games. Okay, last question and then we're gonna get to our Big Ten roundup. Uh, and we have to go to you, the shot doctor. This is from Steven. And this is a subject that we've talked about too. But uh, what about the Hoosiers free throw percentage this season? Specifically, can a team be coached to a significantly higher completion rate? Is it mechanics, mindset, or both? We both think Indiana is going to improve as a free throw shooting team. You know, if nothing else, just kind of the law of averages helping after last year's abomination. But what do you think about free throw shooting? Is that something where you can really, like coaching can have a big impact? Sure. Uh, I, I do think there's a lot of it that's mental, and I do think it's in, in as, as crazy and stupid as this sounds, it's contagious. I think if guys are not confident in the free throw line, that passes on down the line. We saw and, that last year. If your most reliable free throw shooter isn't hitting free throws, everybody starts to question everything. And uh, so I would say, yeah, I think it is mental. I think there is a physical aspect to it where you need to work on mechanics and you need to uh, really practice it but i think practice is what makes free throws better not um you know not necessarily mechanics specifically but i do think there are mechanical issues you can you can sort out but i think that just getting to the line getting used to it and putting up shots and putting up shots and putting up shots will make you better uh the question is you know 
who's working with them with their shots. Personally, I think it should be me. Uh, but <laughs> but it is also, I do think mindset is huge at free throws because there's nothing distracting you except for your own brain when you're at the free throw line. You know, you don't have a guy on you. You're not catching and worrying about rotating the ball to a certain part on your body and then getting it up. You are just staying there yourself and the hoop. And it's, it's about what's going on between the ears for 90% of it. Fred, call me. <laughs> call him, Fred. Fred. Call me. By the way, we have a countdown in the chat right now for the exhibition game. Three days, three hours, 35 minutes, 50 seconds. Till, nice. we, act, till we have actual Indiana basketball. All right. Um, good job. Any, uh, any final thoughts there, Ryan, before we sign no, off for the segment? I'm just, I'm just so ready for something to actually happen. You know? You'll be there Thursday night, right? So yep. we can get some live game reps in together for the exhibition? Should be. Should be. Is okay. that going to double as our assembly call radio? It will double as assembly call radio. Sweet. Yes, it will. All right. Okay. Uh, coming up on the assembly call, we're going to be joined by our special guest, Mike DeCourcy from BTN and the Sporting News for this week's installment of our Big Ten Roundup. We'll discuss his thoughts on secret scrimmages and go best case, worst case for each Big Ten team. Stick with us here on the assembly call. Welcome back to Banner Monday. Each week here in our second segment, we zoom out just a bit to look at how things are going across the Big Ten Conference, not just with Indiana. And there's no one better to provide insight on Big Ten basketball than Mike DeCourcy, who covers Big Ten hoops for BTN in addition to his columns for the Sporting News. Mike, welcome back to Banner Monday. Thanks, Jared. Great to be back. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, everybody, you know, right now, as we were just talking about, is kind of starved for basketball to start, especially Indiana fans with the, not much to look forward to for the rest of the football season, it doesn't appear. And one of the things that we're seeing and that is kind of having to satisfy our desire for any type of basketball news are these closed scrimmages, these secret scrimmages. And it's funny because some teams report out a ton. Like I think for the Michigan State one, we got a full box score. And for Indiana's against Loyola on Sunday, we've really gotten precious, you know, few details about it. I'm just kind of curious to get your general thoughts about these close scrimmages. Do you think that they're a good idea? Obviously, the teams have to give up a public exhibition game to do them. Do you think that they're a good idea? Do you think they're beneficial for the teams who choose to do them? I do. I think they're terrific because you get the opportunity to play uh, whatever competition you choose, and you certainly can choose competition you think will challenge you, uh, give you a particular look, uh, and and give you, you know, you can choose a a scrimmage opponent that you think the other coach is really going to be someone that's difficult to go against. It can, if you're, let's say you're going against a John Beeline in a regular season, you can go against somebody you feel is really going to make you work. And, and so I, I think all that's good. I, that's the part that doesn't add up for me is the secret part. It doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And I understand you're not supposed to televise them and all that sort of stuff. And they don't want to put them, they don't want to make them full fledged exhibition games. But I've had a 10-year battle or however long it's been with the NCAA over this. And eventually, I, I, I can't call it a battle anymore because I've given up. But the idea that, that no reporters can go in there is ludicrous. I mean, they're, they're dictating media policy to their members. And they don't have a right to do that. And, and, I, and, and I've talked to the NCAA about this. And, and they say, well, you need to go through the... Pop, through the practice, through, through the through the uh, uh, the the way that they the legislative process, and you have to give people a sponsor. And I'm like, no, no, this is an interpretation. It is not in the language of the rule 
to say no reporters can be allowed inside. It's in the lang it's in the interpretation of how it's supposed to be publicized. And I, as I said, if the, if you are a coach and the two coaches don't want any media in there, that's that's fine. I mean, that's their prerogative. But I know that there are places where every practice is open all year round until they get to one of these scrimmages and then they're not allowed in. Hmm. Well, if there's any place that I can sign to uh, to support you in that, I agree. Um, last question on that, you know, every now and then we do see some details come out. Is there anything that you look at or kind of take seriously from the results? You know, like anything, any kind of specific type of detail from these scrimmages that you think is actually worth paying attention to, or does it just depend on the context? Yeah, it, 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 for us, it really is. We don't know what happens in any of them. We don't know who plays, who doesn't play. I mean, at times, like you said, you get the box score and you get, but you don't really understand the, the context. I mean, I know I, I've, I've been told about scrimmages and I've never been to one. Um, I've been told about scrimmages that uh, where, where like one team will just play zone the whole time and or a whole period of, of and just just so the other team can get a look at it. And then they, they will do that to each other. And those kinds of things come up. So you really can't read a lot into the results or that sort of thing. Uh, you 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 really just kind of have to wait for the first public exhibition or the first game to, or in some cases, if you have enough of a following, you have interest in a blue white game or a red and white game or whatever somebody might play publicly so that their teams can get a look at, so their fans can get a look at their team. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to the big 10. Obviously big 10 play won't start for a little while, but you know, we want your insight on, on these Big Ten teams. And so I thought it might be fun to kind of go best case, worst case with each team. You know, last week you gave us your top four, but this will give us a chance to to get your general thoughts on each team before the season starts. And we'll just go in alphabetical order here. So let's go best case, worst case for the Illinois Fighting Illini. Well, I think the best case is that they just make a step forward, uh, that they're able to use their young players to say a year from now, we're going to be something. Uh, so we're going to be someone that you have to to really take seriously and that they continue to build their culture. Uh, they had a transition year uh, under uh, Brad Underwood that didn't go probably quite the way they wanted it to. And I think that they certainly went through a year in which uh, there were a lot of people who are no longer in the program. And I'll exempt the Ron Black from this because he was terrific. But there were a lot of people who are no longer with the program who clearly did not have both feet into that transition. And so it, it, now you've got people that want to be there. And I don't expect this to be a great year for Illinois, but that's the best case is that they make progress toward being a factor next season. And what's the worst case for them? I guess that it's kind of a continuation of last year. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't ex anticipate that. And, they, and maybe the worst case scenario for them is that they have a tough year and that their fans get discouraged. And that's why remembering the first the, the best case is really important because I don't think it's about wins and losses for Illinois this year. I think it's about building a culture and seeing individual and collective progress. All right. Best case, worst case for the Indiana Hoosiers. Yeah. Best case is they figure out point guard and they're a factor in the championship race because they have everything else that you need to be that, especially if Deron Davis comes back and healthy and get able to give them another look inside and, and, you know, as many minutes, I mean, we're talking about somebody who's capable of playing 30. I don't think that they're going to ask Duran to do that, but he's certainly a, a player who is, is good enough to do that. Uh, and so if they're able to get him back and get the point guard thing figured out, there's no reason why Indiana's not a team that challenges, it contends, I should say, 
for the Big Ten title. And what does contention mean for me? It, I think it really means that you're one of those teams that is playing in the last couple of weeks for one of the first day by, for uh, the first two day buys in the Big Ten tournament. And what do you think is the worst case for Indiana? Well, I think the worst case is that they go through another year in which everything is f- figured out except who to get the basketball and how to get the offense started. Uh, because they, they, there were times last year when everything was really rolling except for that factor and that they really had to fight their way through that. And I, th- I thought that they did a nice job with that a lot of times. But then you, you, after you'd play 38 great minutes, it still was always nagging at you. Uh, I, I do think that they're going to get better at that position. Uh, like I said, best case is they get good at that position. Uh, next, you know, the more realistic case is they get good enough there to be an NCAA tournament team. Okay. How about the Iowa Hawkeyes? Well, the best case is that they start to guard somebody. And <laughs> that, 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 that yeah. you know, becoming a, again, I'm not even saying a good defensive team. I think just one that isn't awful. And somebody that, you know, maybe ranks in the 80 to 100 range in, def- in defensive efficiency. Because if they do that, then they are a team that will, that, that will contend for a tournament bid. Because offensively, they're about as good as anybody in the Big Ten. Yeah, they really are. Uh, okay, how about the Maryland Terrapins? You know, interesting. I, 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 I was really surprised uh, when I saw the Julius Ir- Irving Award list, the uh, the young man Wiggins at Maryland was on the list, and, and he was ranked coming out of high school by 24-7 sports, uh, I think around 42. And so it, it, best case scenario is that the people who did the Irving list are right, because if they've got an Irving list level wing, uh, then, then they've got everything they need. I mean, they've got size in the front court uh, with Fern- uh, Bruno Fernando, and, and Anthony Cowens as good a two-way point guard as there is in the league. And so I don't, I, I was really shocked by Wiggins' inclusion on that list. Uh, but if they're right, then they have a lot fewer questions than, than we think they do. Just a random question. If you were starting a Big Ten team, which point guard would you rather build around? Anthony Cowan or Cassius Winston? You know, that's, that's a great question because Cowan is a better, is a far better defender than Cassius Winston. But Cassius Winston is a guy who can shoot 55 percent from three uh on you know for 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 an extended period of time um we're not talking about a good shooter we're talking about a great shooter although he does limit his his tries he doesn't take a ton of them because he doesn't take a ton of shots uh i i, I probably would pick count because i know that i'm covered at both ends yeah but if i if i wanted to build an offense first team uh cassius winston's an excellent choice yeah uh, okay, let's go to Maryland or Maryland, Michigan. Best case, worst case. Yeah, Michigan's best case is that they become offensively uh, proficient, given that uh, they lost the key factors in their offense from a year ago. Uh, Duncan Robinson's three-point shooting, uh, Mo Wagner's uh, inside offense. Uh, excuse me, inside-outside versatility, uh, and obviously what Muhammad Ali Abdul Rahman was able to play three positions, and so they lose all that. So if they can find a way to fight their way through what they lost to become a proficient offensive team, then their defense takes over. And I, I will, I'll be stunned if their defense isn't even better than it was a year ago, because they're so much more dynamic than they were last season. So I think that's their best case scenario. And their worst case scenario is that, uh, that defensively that they backslide and become more like the typical Michigan Bayline team was 
because last year was an aberration for them. I think that they're they're trending in the right direction. I think that's what the real truth is. But they could, you know, they could trick us and go backward defensively. How about the Spartans? Best case, worst case? Yeah, I think the best case is that they're able to find a way to make Nick Ward a 30-minute player. Hmm. If he is that, then that means everything's working for them that they need to work. Uh, because he, he struggles in terms of his conditioning or has. Uh, they say he's in better shape now. Uh, he has struggled with fouls, and so that's always been an issue. And it, it's really, you know, it's, it's forced Tom Izzo to be really creative in games. I mean, he's always had a lot of bodies to put in that spot, but it's not the same as having your first choice. So they've had to mix and match and do different things. So if Nick Ward can average in the ballpark of 30 minutes a game, I think that's their best case scenario. And the worst case scenario is that you know, I talked before about Cassius Winston not being a great defender. Well, they don't have uh, off the bench Tum Tum Nair to come in and bail them out situationally uh, from that problem. So if Nick Ward isn't able to play 30 minutes and, t- and you still have a problem defensively at the point, then defensively, you know, you're not the kind of team that you need to be in order to win a Big Ten title. And there's no Jaron Jackson there to cover up for mistakes either because they yes, were yes. unbelievable defensively last year. Unbelievable. Um, Minnesota and Richard Pitino. Best well, case, we worst already case. see the worst-case scenario starting. Did they uh, Did they have an injury? Did I see that on Twitter today? Yes. Curry is down and will be down for four to six weeks. Man. And it's exactly what they didn't need. Uh, he had, he had a, a, a surgery procedure on his knee. Uh, he missed all of last year with the knee injury, and it's just, it's a is this a continuation of last year? They don't have enough guys to say okay, we can we can lose a first rate Big Ten quality starting player and and be fine. And it's just don't and and so the four to six weeks. I mean, if he had had this surgery or you know if it, if the, whatever circumstance had presented itself that he needed to have the surgery back in November, excuse me, in September or or, or August, then I mean, he wouldn't be in the kind of condition you want, but he would still be uh, able to be able to play in the, in, the, in the games that are starting a week from now. I hate injuries. That's a shame. Yeah, really bad. Really bad news for Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I, I, especially when it's one after the other. I mean, I work with Robbie Hummel uh, at BTN, oh, and I know what he went through uh, and was able to fight back from, but it's still a shame. What do you what do you kind of see as their best case? Because you know they've kind of been a trendy sleeper pick because they're predicted to be really good last year, and you know with good health, their roster projected to be much better this year. Yeah, and so I think the best case for them is that they're able to survive Curry's absence, and Amir Coffey is able to be a superstar. And he has, yeah, I mean he's first team All Big Ten quality player if he's healthy. And a year ago he was not. Uh, if 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 he is able to be a superstar, and they're, and they're fiddling around with him as a point guard or a, a, an instigator of their offense. Um, that worries me a little bit because I'm, although I think he's capable of doing that, um, that sort of m- maybe mutes his greatness a little bit. It'd be the old philosophy of weaken you, weakening your team at two positions. And I, I know that that may not be their ultimate answer, but whatever it is their answer, if he can dominate uh, periodically from that spot. I think that's a best case scenario for Minnesota. And then they're a factor. You seem pretty high on Nebraska. So what's your best case, worst case for Tim Miles Cornhuskers? Well, the best case, the, the first thing that has to happen for Nebraska to be special is uh, that Glenn Watson has to be all in as a point guard, which Tim Miles said on media. I think we talked about this a week ago uh, that he is. And then the second thing is Isaiah Roby taking a huge step forward. That's another thing we talked about, but 
I, I think going from being a guy that everybody in the league gulps when he gets the ball because what can he do? I mean, because there are so many different things he can do. Uh, to being a guy who just goes ahead and shoves that ball down people's throats uh, more often than he does. Those two things happen, and Nebraska's right there. Worst case for Nebraska is that they is that everybody's the same as last year. Uh, Isaiah Roby's still somebody that's really talented, but not all the way there. Hey, I watched Kenyon Martin go through that for three years and then become the best player in the country. So it doesn't happen overnight for everybody. Uh, so that so Roby's no guarantee to be a, a great player. And then Glenn's no guarantee to to you know accept the point guard role. And then you know James Palmer, uh, if he's so if he's just the same as he was last year, I think that's fine. Uh, but for, for so many of their players, they need to improve in order to be able to handle the expectation that goes with being uh, expected to make the tournament. How about Northwestern? Big disappointment last year. What's their best case, worst case? Yeah, you know, uh, the best case, first of all, is that Ryan Taylor is what I saw him to be in practice when I, on the day before Big Ten Media Day. He was just, I mean, I, it was it was almost like, you know, I don't want to oversell it, you know, but Remember MJ with the shrug in that Portland game in that in the NBA finals? It was like that. I mean, he was making so many plays and so many shots. It became almost funny. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then I think they, they have to figure out point guard. Their, their, their problem at point guard is probably more profound than anybody's in the league. Uh, and so they have to have an answer for that. I know that their, their thought process is to initiate uh, through other actions, but they still have to be able to get the ball over half court. How about the Ohio State Buckeyes? Best case, worst case? Yeah, I, I, you know, that's an interesting one because they have some, they have a lot of guys who were factors last year, but nobody other than CJ Jackson, who was a key guy beginning to end pretty much every game. Uh, the, the Wessons were contributing players. And that's, you know, that's not, you know, that's not something you know, that they're necessarily, you automatically go from being contributing to being great. Uh, so they have to have some, some of that work out for them guys who were situationally contributing last year to being regularly, uh, regularly performing, <coughs> excuse me. And then I think some of their young players, some of their freshmen, they probably need more freshman contribution than almost anybody in the league. All right. We've got four yeah. left Penn state, best case, worst case, uh, Penn state best case is their guards are good enough to support the front court. The front court is rock solid. Mike, Mike Watkins has to improve. Uh, he has to like, like, um, like Nick Ward, he's got to improve at being able to stay in games. Uh, and, and then you've got to have guard play that not, not only just a playmaker, somebody that can get you into offense, but they need guys to make shots too. Uh, Cause as good as those guys are in the front court, uh, Josh Reeves and, and, Lamar Stevens, um, you know, they're not necessarily great shooters. I mean, Stevens can make a shot, but he's more of a scorer. Reeves is a great defender uh, and, and then can make a shot situationally. But they need some guys who can really shoot the basketball. I've, I've been told that they've got freshmen that they're really happy with and really excited about. Hmm. Uh, those guys are going to have to play great basketball because right now I think Penn State really feels like they've got you – know, the, the, the next step is for them to make the tournament. They were so close a year ago. But the next step is to get there. And Purdue, they're replacing a lot of guys, obviously. What's their best case and worst case? Yeah, the best case scenario for them is Matt Harms is more – by the end of the year, Matt Harms was really not a factor. And I think probably some of that was just the wear and tear 
every day in practice, going against Lucas Haas, uh, excuse me, Isaac Haas. Um, and going against that, I think probably wore on him a little bit. Uh, so he needs to be really good beginning to end, uh, able to play, you know, 20 plus minutes, 25 minutes, maybe. Uh, and then they have to find, a, you know, the best way to maximize Carson Edwards ability. I suspect that, uh, if there's anybody that can do that, it's, it's Matt, uh, Matt Painter. He's a terrific coach and, uh, and he's had Carson around for three years and understands where, what's, what his best situations are, where best to get him the basketball. What do you kind of see as the worst case for the Boilermakers? Well, I think the worst case is that they're small. I mean, and small means Matt Harms doesn't play enough because of fouls or, or, uh, or fatigue. Um, and you know, they, they don't really get the, the, the kind of contributions that they need off their reserve uh, front court players. Uh, and that, yeah, that could happen to them and they won't be small at every position because they have in those Eastern, you know, one of the guys who I assume will pl- start a point guard and he'd be one of the be- biggest point guards in the league. I'm not talking about small in the front court. I, 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 I think that they'll figure out a way for uh, Matt to be a, an effective player. I, I think we saw at the beginning of last year, there's a lot of things he can add. He, he it's such great timing on shot blocks and, and, and such great uh, vision for closing out uh, on shooters. So, I think that he'll be really effective, but you know there, there are you know there are scenarios in which that would not be you know would not be the reality. Now, how about Rutgers? Is there any hope in Piscataway? Yeah, you know, I, I thought that they were really making a lot of progress in the last year. By the end of the year, they were somebody that uh, everybody knew was difficult to play. Uh, and then I think the worst case scenario for them kind of happened in the spring, uh, in terms of this year. Uh, but in terms of again, this is. Rutgers is not an overnight build. I mean, they've been poor for too long. So for them, I think they're somewhat similar to Illinois. This is a this is a culture in transition, and last year was a big step in that transition. Uh, they being a factor in New York was really good for them. Uh, the fact that they were so hard to play for a lot of teams, I think all that worked in their favor. So you know, I think Steve Peichel is going to do another good job this year. Again, their fans have to stay patient, but I think things are looking up for Rutgers, and they're about two players away from really being a good team in the league. And I can't make any jokes about Rutgers because last time out they kicked our butt, so we got we to got, <laughs> we go out and beat them again. Uh, and last one, best case, worst case for Wisconsin, which is really a team that I feel like has probably the biggest swing of opinions you know, when you, between different people who analyze the Big Ten. So best case, worst case for them. Well, best case for them is that Kobe King and and Demetri Trice were the absence that their absence was were as punishing as we all allowed them to be while they were gone, uh, because we sort of you know in the media said okay you get a you know you get a mulligan for this because you had two major injuries uh, you were coming off a, a, a loss of several key regulars and you had been great for twenty years in a row so it's okay. But now those guys are going to have to be factors and you're going to have to see more improvement in in some of Wisconsin's supporting players. Uh, I don't think there's any question you know, that healthy Brad Davison, healthy, uh, excuse me, Ethan Happ, uh, those guys, if those guys are, are, are 100 percent, they're going to have a couple great players. But they need to get more out of their supporting players than they did a year ago. Whew, OK, that's all of them. Thank you for that, Mike. 
And uh, any final thoughts here before we close up? Any Maybe, you know, as we look toward this exhibition game on Thursday night, anything that you think Indiana fans should in particular watch for? Obviously, you don't want to overreact to any type of exhibition game, but anything that you'll be kind of looking out for? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, how is Romeo deployed um, and and how and what is he able to do with that? Uh, you know, is, who does he guard? Uh, where, where do you play him in the offense? What do you want him to do? Do you want him to sh- you don't want him catching to shoot? Or, uh, do you want him to? catch and drive do you want to uh, you know what are you what because remember a lot of that is is based on how you run your offense so where you when when duke had jj reddick and they screened all day for him it's not the same as you know what they did when they had jabari parker for instance so uh i I think that'll be interesting to watch and you know i don't i don't want to dwell too much on the point guard thing but i will be curious to see you know who starts the offense uh and and how it gets going and and from there, you know, does it still look like a weakness or is it starting to look like it's covered? I think, again, you're not expecting to all of a sudden Isaiah Thomas or Yogi Ferrell to come charging out of the tunnel. But if you can cover that position, you are, you know, you are elite at multiple positions relative to your conference. So if you can cover that one, then you're, you're in great shape. Absolutely. Follow him on Twitter at TSN Mike. Read his work on the sporting news. Watch him on BTN. Mike DeCourcy, thank you very much for joining us again here on Banner Monday. Thanks, Jared. Okay. So coming up, it is time for another edition of Basketball 201 with Ben Ladner. We're going to talk more about ball screen defense this week, dissecting what it means to ice and trap and go under screens, the pros and cons of each approach. Stick with us here on the Assembly Call. That's next. Welcome back to Banner Monday. You know, here at the Assembly Call, we don't just want to make you a smarter IU basketball fan. We want to make you a smarter basketball fan, period. And that is the purpose of our Basketball 201 segments. You already know the basics of the game, but in this segment, we go next level to dissect the concepts and strategies that teams employ in the pursuit of victory. Pay attention to these segments, and you will have a deeper understanding of what's going on out there on the court while you're watching IU play. And here to continue our dissection of the many different ways that teams can defend ball screens is Ben Ladner, a senior at Indiana, one of our interns this season, and a future NBA editor at The Ringer or someplace else that values smart uh, basketball writing and analysis. Ben, welcome back to uh, to Banner Monday. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's a very generous introduction. <laughs> it's it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> so a lot of really really positive comments about last week's segment, um, yeah. which I'm, I'm you know obviously anytime you kind of try something out new, that it's great to get that kind of feedback. So. Really excited about that. We talked about ball screen defense, you know, pick and roll defense uh, last time. We talked about hedging and switching, hedging kind of the way that Indiana defended it a lot last year, switching something that, you know, Archie Miller has talked about that we've talked about Indiana possibly doing this year. So today we're going to talk about a few other ways that you can defend the ball screens. And I'll kind of turn it over to you to intro these and then we'll go through some videos and and we've talked about for the podcast listeners trying to make it a little bit easier you know for them to follow along even if they don't watch the video but you can always watch the video on youtube this is episode 433 and i will post a link in the show notes um you know this will be the third segment in that video so just kind of scroll forward until you see me and ben talking then you'll be able to see the video part of it as well but over to you ben yeah so the three we've got today are uh ice drop or sorry ice uh, yeah, drop and uh, trap, which the there are two other ones that are, uh, you know, kind of in the mainstream, which are, uh, you know, showing and going under, but those are pretty self-explanatory, pretty simple, and, and maybe not worth going into a ton of depth 
on. Um, but the first one I want to start with is ice, which is maybe my personal, you know, favorite way of defending the pick and roll. It's uh, it's certainly very common in the NBA. Uh, Tom Thibodeau was one of the pioneers of this style. Uh, you Bulls fans and Timberwolves fans probably uh, will recognize, you know, his voice shouting ice, ice, ice uh, on Timberwolves broadcasts at, at his players. Um, it, it's, it's pretty widely used across the NBA, maybe not so much in college. Um, but basically it's what happens is I've got a clip here, Grizzlies versus Spurs. This is from last season. Uh, it, it's on side pick and roll. So this is, this is only on side pick and rolls. If the ball handler is, is set up in the middle, uh, if it's a high pick and roll or, or if they're trying, you know, to go toward the sideline, it doesn't quite work as well. But the basic offensive setup here is that you've got a pick and roll Tyreek Evans right here on the right wing gets the screen from Mark Gasol, wants to go left, which is which is to the middle. Um, the entire point of icing the pick and roll is to prevent the offense from going middle. Because like we touched on last time, the middle is probably the most vulnerable part of a defense other than maybe you know a wide open corner three. Uh, but when it, if a ball handler gets to the middle, they've got so many options available to them. They can shoot it, they can kick out for a three, they can pass it to a guy. There's usually a, a guy in the short corner um, and, and these days they're expanding out just to the corner, uh, but for a dunk or a layup. So there's just a lot of different options. Think about a guy like James Harden in the pick and roll with Clint Capella. When he gets into the lane, there's just so many you know choices available to him that the defense is kind of cooked if that happens. So here, Tyreek Evans, they want to get this pick and roll going middle and, and you know that'll set up kick out threes. It'll set up a roll with Gasol or maybe even a basket for Evans himself. And so what you see here is the Spurs, the Spurs ice pretty much every side pick and roll. They're one of the best in the league. In particular, Danny Green is one of the best players in the league at executing this. So Evans, you can see, you can see him kind of hesitate there. He wants to go middle, but what Danny Green does is watch how when the screen comes, he angles his body right there. He jumps toward the screen and almost gets parallel to the sideline with his chest facing the near sideline, right like that. Uh, low in a stance. This is great defense by Danny Green. And he is absolutely not going to allow Tyreek Evans to turn that corner and get into the middle. He's forcing him to go to the sideline. And the, and the whole point here is that the guard, in this case, Danny Green, and the big man, LaMarcus Aldridge, they want to force this guy to kind of this, you know, no man's land, mid-range corner area over here on the right side. Um, and so when, when Tyreek Evans, you know, you can see him here wants to go middle instead goes with kind of an in and out dribble and it looks like Danny green's beat. Right. And this is one of the things that I thought about a lot when I first saw when, when I was kind of digging into this, when I was maybe five years younger about, you know, it looks like guys are getting beat, but that's, that's just part of the scheme. Uh, you see Kawhi Leonard do this a lot where it looks like the guys just gotten by him, but really he's forcing his man into the help defense, which is what this, this scheme is all about. So Evans drives right, and LaMarcus Aldridge, rotating from the free throw line, he's got Gasol, but when this, when this drive comes, it's incumbent upon this big man to provide the help. And so they don't get the trap over here on the right side, but LaMarcus Aldridge, able to rotate, rotate over, stays vertical, contests the layup, beautiful job, and Evans you know, is forced to take a tough shot, which he misses. One thing to note here, you might be thinking, you know, why doesn't he just hit Mark Gasol on the pop? Because Gasol just kind of, you know, fills to space here. Watch Patty Mills coming over from the weak side, where when Evans drives, if he stunts over. So if Evans wants to make that pass, Patty Mills is right there. And he's playing in between Gasol, and I think this is James Ennis over here on the weak side. So if, if Evans tries to make this cross-court pass, boom, Patty's in, in the, 
the passing lane there. If he tries to bounce it to Gasol, he's in the passing lane there. If he does go to Gasol, Mills will close out here. And you kind of just, it's just a, you know, close out to whichever man is open kind of thing for the rest of the defense. Because while these two guys who are guarding the ball primarily down are, in the paint, are, are, down in the paint, guarding the ball. Yeah. So while Aldridge and Green are taking care of the ball, these other three guys are basically zoning up on the other four offensive players uh, and trying to prevent those cross court passes and, and kind of just, you know, if, if the ball gets over to one of these wing guys, whoever's closest to the, the ball just closes out and you, that's called an X out where you kind of just close out to the open positions uh, wherever they may be. So Mills steps over, does a great job taking away that pass and Tyreek Evans, no other options and ends up missing the layup. So buried in there was an interesting little comment that you said five years ago, were you studying pick and roll coverages? <laughs> were you, were not, you doing this when you were in studying, high school? <laughs> more, more of a, you know, just watching the game. And I, it would, I would look at these like guys who had great defensive reputations. And I was like, well, he's not that good at defense. He's getting beat off the dribble all the time. But then you kind of realize like, oh, that's, that's the whole point. And Kawhi was one of the first guys that I kind of realized that with. Yeah. Well, okay. So why don't more college teams do this? I mean, it obviously seems like you've really got to have everybody on the same page. And, you know, like you said, I mean, Patty Mills has to immediately recognize what's happening, rotate over. Why don't we see more college teams use this? Because it seems like a really effective way to guard it, you know, on the, on the side. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually not entirely sure. I would, I would probably experiment with it a little bit more if I were a college coach. Um, maybe, maybe you know, maybe they don't be, have enough practice time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it could be that. You know, it does require that. You know, exec- almost like hedging. It doesn't require quite as much connectedness across all five guys as hedging does, but uh, it's similar in the sense that you really need all five players to to be tied in and operating at the same time. Um, it, it could be could because of the spacing differences um i'm not really entirely sure to be honest um but i I definitely would experiment with it more if i were a coach yeah okay Um, and if anyone has any insight as to why that may be i'd I'd be happy to hear it yeah no i don't know um okay you want to hit up the next one yeah let's look at the next one um so this one this is maybe the most conventional coverage uh both in in college and the nba uh it's a drop which you know is, is kind of what it sounds like it's pretty self-explanatory uh, this you're game gonna see here this is good memories what's that so this game doesn't bring back good memories no this was not i was broadcasting this game um this was not a uh great showing for indiana as you can see uh it is already a 14 point game just about 12 minutes in so mm-hmm. uh not not great this was kind of the low point of their season <laughs> in yeah. many ways but a pretty good defensive possession here one of the few in this game from indiana obviously against michigan um 24 to 10 michigan's up but you got a pick and roll here i i think this is uh i can't even remember this guy's name number 55 on michigan um backup know. point guard he's driving against josh newkirk and you know michigan very nba style offense they run a pick and roll mo wagner comes up to set the screen and Jawan morgan guarding mo wagner basically he just comes level to the screen sometimes you'll see this big man maybe step a couple feet off, maybe down here by the free throw line at the elbow. Some, some guys like, you know, Pau Gasol is a guy in the NBA, maybe with a guy like Deron Davis, some of these slower big men who can't get all the way up to the level of the screen. Sometimes you'll see them drop a little farther back, but Morgan goes to the level of the screen while Newkirk fights over. So Josh Newkirk, he runs into the screen, but he gets over the top of it. Ideally, he would stay on the ball handler's hip. He does a pretty good job here because he gets across it quickly. But ideally, you want to stay attached to that ball handler, stay on uh, his hip, and get over that screen. And so Jawan Morgan 
his job basically is to contain this guy for as long as it takes Newkirk to get over this screen. And when he does, you just drop back to Mo Wagner. And so you have a little bit of help side defense here from Devontae Green, whose man is standing here in the corner. If the offense is really quick and they're able to create enough separation, they can throw this skip pass over here into the left corner. Um, but that that really takes a lot of uh, coordination and precision because of just how quickly these things happen. So Green does a good job here stunting down and get, then getting back out to his man. Michigan's forced to kick it out, and they don't really have anywhere to go. So Morgan and Newkirk do a really nice job here where basically, I'll show the clip one more time, Morgan comes out, sticks with it, and then just kind of drops back to Mo Wagner. And you want to kind of keep that space as tight as you can without letting the big man you know, slip down to the basket. It can be tougher to contain when the big man can pop because like we showed with that Indiana State game, you're able to create a little bit more separation along the perimeter um, and then force the defense into some longer rotations. So is this a pretty common coverage that you'll see? Yeah, this is pretty common, especially in the NBA um, and college teams. I think this is probably the most common coverage you'll see just because you can basically do it with two guys and it doesn't require guys running all over the place and having to, you know, it's not like hedging where you're asking your big man to get all the way out uh, on the floor. You're not asking, you know, a big man to switch onto a faster guy that he can't contain. It's it's a good kind of medium between being aggressive and being, you know, more conventional. By the way, um, in the chat, Coach Tonsoni, you know, back to our conversation about icing and why maybe more teams don't do it. He said it takes quick recognition, which makes it difficult. The ball handler, uh, uh, the guy guarding the ball handler, you have to force the ball baseline. And if not, right. the coverage is busted. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's the other thing is, is if it's probably a higher risk time kind of defense, which is why you see it more in the NBA, because those defenders are just so much better uh, and they're able to execute it a little bit better where like in college, you know, if, if you screw up ice defense, then, you know, like I said, the defense is kind of cooked if the guy gets into the middle because your help defense is all out of whack. It's all predicated on forcing a guy to one part of the floor. So if you're not able to do that and you get compromised, then it can be especially crippling. So where can dropping really hurt you? Like, where's the big weakness in this one? I would say, you know, if the if this guard, like if Newkirk, let's say Mo Wagner sets a really solid screen or this is just like a really wide screener who's like who's just going to hammer you if the if the uh, guy guarding the ball takes a long time to get around the screen it can be vulnerable to to dribble penetration where you have like if this ball handler is able to get around Jawan morgan here and drive middle that can often be a weak spot and then you have you're asking zach mcroberts here guarding the weak side corner you're asking him to step up guard the paint and then you have this kick out three to the corner mm. uh, it can also if Devonte green doesn't help down enough here you can hit Mo, Michigan would be able to hit Mo Wagner on the on the roll, and then if if he helps down too much, then like I said, you've got this skip pass available to the the shooter in the corner, which is which is something that uh, a lot of NBA teams look for against the drop is they just try to pull one of these help side defenders into the paint and then look for one of those corner shooters. You know, you mentioned uh, Danny Green and how good of a defensive player he is. You know, and really probably underrated for his defense. Yeah, as you watch Devonte obviously Danny's brother. Do you see any kind of similarities defensively there? I mean, Devontae's obviously much younger, you know, has you right. know, some maturing to do, but do you see any similarities between those two? I think there are similarities in that they are both good defenders, but as far as the style of defense, uh, Danny Green is, you know, he's not like a great athlete. He's not the quickest guy. He's not the most explosive. He's not super fast. Like you watch him run up and down the floor and he, he looks kind of slow, honestly. Um, but like, like I showed in that clip where, 
he's just so good at executing and he knows where to be and he always rotates on time and he knows exactly what the scheme is and how to execute it. Uh, whereas Devonte is more kind of, you know, get up in your Jersey and, and slide laterally, stay with the guy. Uh, you know, he's got really quick hands. He's able to knock the ball away, which I guess is a similarity with Danny. Danny green is maybe the best, uh, transition guard defender of all time. Like his ability wow. to block shots in transit. It's uncanny. It's like every time an opponent gets a fast break and Danny green is, is hustling down the court to, to defend a layup. You just know it's going to get blocked because it's Danny green. And he always does that. Um, and he's also bigger. Danny Green's about six six. Devontae's only about six two. Yeah. So there are some differences there. Devontae's not as versatile. Danny can guard, you know, three, sometimes four positions, whereas Devontae's probably a one or two position defender. But as far as those quick hands, um, I think Devontae's recognition is actually pretty good. Uh it, or it was for a young guy. Now that he's a junior, that's kind of more the expectation. But even in his freshman and, and sophomore years, I thought his his instincts and his recognition were pretty good. And I'm sure that's you know, either runs in the family or that's something that Danny's kind of uh, imparted upon him. Yeah. Uh, another thing from coach in the chat, which I think is a good point, the pack line defense, which Indiana plays under Archie Miller, sends, you know, the ball to the middle, which is you yeah. know kind of the whole point, funnel the ball to the middle, which is the opposite of icing where you're trying to, you know, send guys down to the corner. So that can make the coverage difficult for pack line teams just right. because it's the opposite of what you're kind of doing the rest of the time. So, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of coach, he sent in a couple of questions. Um, yeah. so let's get to a couple of those now. Uh, you know, one is, okay, so what action is most dangerous in the pick and roll and what type of defense is best to prevent that action? As you said, you know, kind of on a whole, obviously scouting would kind of determine that, but what do you think is the, is the most dangerous action? Probably the, the kick out three or the lob dunk. Um, like I said, you, a lot of, uh, a lot of attacking drop coverages is trying to pull in those weak side defenders and kick out to, uh, to corner three point shooters. Again, I'll bring up James Harden as the example where he just does such a good job putting pressure when he gets in the middle, puts so much pressure on the defense that, you know, when the, when the help defenders have to sag in, he's, he just recognizes that immediately. LeBron's another guy who does this. They recognize immediately when the defender's leaning. And they just throw the pass right by them uh, at the exact moment when they they lean the wrong way. So that can be really dangerous. And then if you don't cover that lob man, uh, I think of a guy like Clint Capella or Rudy Gobert in the NBA, where they just have so you know people talk a lot about gravity at, from a, a three point standpoint, where like you know a guy who is a good shooter, you have to stay tight to him, so you're not able to help off of them, which is all true. But there's also gravity from from a lob standpoint where you know, a really great role man, a guy who's just like prime DeAndre Jordan, who's just going to dunk everything around the basket. You know, you have to come down and tag that guy from the weak side. You have to make sure that he can't get up to get that lob, which can unlock those weak side, you know, cross court passes for threes. And if you don't come over to, to, to take that lob away and you have an elite finisher above the rim, then you can just throw the ball up and he's going to dunk it. So, you know, really it kind of depends on the coverages teams will offenses will attack pick and roll differently depending on what kind of coverage they they play so like against a hedge like IU does I think getting rid of the ball quickly and finding that that quick release where you're able to get that momentary four on three advantage and make plays out of that is really crucial because if you allow the the defense to recover before you're able to press that advantage then you're basically back to square one and you haven't gone anywhere but you know we saw ISU do this in the first game of last season where they release the ball quickly they find that big man popping or rolling uh, Golden State does this a lot with Draymond Green, like on those short rolls, you just get rid of the ball quickly and you've got that four on three. And so you're either going to get a layup, a lob or a kick out three. And um, that can be really, really dangerous for a team. 
So, you know, we've talked now about, I think, five different coverages, and Coach asked this question too. Is it better to defend a pick and roll several ways or to master one and two? Because, uh, you know, one thing about Tom Crean is he, you know, tried a lot of these different ways and, you know, shoot would try and switch defenses in the middle of possessions, which theoretically probably made a lot of sense and was, you know, utterly brilliant. But you have to be able to explain that to players and they actually have to be able to execute it in the heat of the moment. So and, and, you know, maybe that is a reason why college teams don't, you know, do have a whole lot of real complicated coverages and try and master yeah. a couple is because you just don't have unlimited practice time. You know, like not that the professionals have unlimited time, but it's right. not like the college where you have rules on that kind of stuff. So uh, what do you think, you know, especially for a college team, would you rather just master one or two of them or try and, you know, have a different one for every situation that you could encounter? Yeah, I think it's personnel dependent, both, you know, your own team and then your opponent. So like if you're playing a team that has, you know, let's say Steph Curry, we're playing college basketball and just a guy who can pull up, you know, Nate Mason, Carson Edwards, a guy who can pull up for three off the pick and roll, then you're probably not going to play a drop coverage against them. Yogi right? Farrell, Victor Oladipo. We, we need to work on our references here. Exactly. <laughs> you're probably not going to play a drop coverage against those guys because they're going to come around that screen. And even if, you know, the guard is, is attached and stays t- tight to their hip, that momentary separation they get, you know, that, that little window where the guards recovering and the big man has to contain that drive, they're going to pull up for three. And if they, if, if the big man steps up and, and really comes out and takes that away, then they're hitting the roll man, um, for a layup or a, you know, a kick out three or, or something, you know, you keep the chain moving that way. So against that sort of team, against that sort of guard, you might run a hedge or a trap or, or maybe just a straight switch. Um, against teams that has that have like an elite one-on-one creator, you probably don't want to switch because you know that team can just that one guy can burn you in isolations. Uh, you know, if if you have a team that can whose big men can shoot threes, like Indiana State, you probably don't want to run a hedging defense because they can pop and they can hurt you with the pick and pop threes. So I think it depends on which teams you're playing. Personally, I, I do think it is better to master you know two or three coverages, maybe just so you can have that alternative. If you face a guy who can really exploit one particular coverage, you can turn to something else. But I don't know that mixing in four five, six different types of pick and roll coverages um, is necessarily the easiest thing to do for a college team. Sometimes you'll see NBA teams do it, especially in the playoffs where like, you know, you're able to game plan for an opponent for, for a week and you, you have all this, this big sample on them and you can kind of make adjustments and change things up. But over the course of a college season, it's just so hard to, constantly adjust your pick and roll defense over the course of a you know a game to game kind of thing let alone quarter to quarter possession to possession so yeah i mean i think every team probably has some type of drop coverage in their system that's just you know it's such a conventional way to defend it indiana even did that late last season where they would start dropping their guys uh like that michigan game as opposed to hedging um but then they they also have their base defense which for iu was hedging yeah, and, and I'm sure if you have an experienced team where you you know you know your standard ways just down cold, then maybe you have a little bit more freedom. You know, if you're facing a big game or a particularly good player that you want to put in a little wrinkle, and you've got some experienced guys to do it, you probably have right. a little bit more leeway. And if you've got a really young team, you probably don't want to confuse yeah. them too much. And you just want to get good at your standard stuff because ultimately, you know, you're going to give up some, but that's ultimately going to be better because at least you can hang your hat on something. Yeah. So. Great stuff. Did you have any others that you wanted to go over? I've got I've got one more, um, which is you know, can we can touch on pretty quickly here? Yeah, let's hit uh, it. Let's hit it quickly crap. before we close. What's that? Let's hit it quickly before we close. Let's do, let's it. do it. Yeah. Um, it's it's the trap, which 
Indiana didn't do a whole lot of last season, so I've actually got another NBA clip here. Sorry for all the uh, the people who aren't into the NBA who are watching this for all these uh, these pro basketball clips. But you know, traps are pretty self-explanatory. You know, I'll play the clip here where Golden State Warriors, San Antonio Spurs. This is Steph Curry, obviously not a guy you want to leave open, and Golden State, as soon as the pick is set, they immediately trap Pau Gasol guarding Draymond Green. This is the top of the key. Uh, for those who are not watching, Pau Gasol and Patty Mills immediately just spring to the ball. And Steph Curry, he's seen this a million times, drops it over the top to Draymond Green, one dribble, lob to Sean Livingston. God, they made that look easy. <laughs> I mean, the Warriors, it's a good point. They are maybe the best team in the NBA at doing this because watch when Draymond catches it, he's got Ian Clark in the corner for a three if this guy helps too far down on him. He's got the layup if no one comes up to stop him. And he's got this weak side three if Danny Green comes in to uh, to help on the lob man. So what ends up happening is LaMarcus Aldridge, or Dwayne Dedman, I'm sorry, steps up and he throws the lob to Livingston. Now let's say Danny Green comes down and takes away Livingston. Well, then that's an easy kick to the corner. To, I think this is Iguodala. So, you know, it's it's that idea of having that four on three advantage where, you know, four Golden State Warriors, especially when it's Draymond Green making the decisions, one of the best passing big men in the NBA against a you know, a three-man defensive unit, essentially. It's just an impossible situation that you're in. And so, you know, this is quintessential Warriors, lobs it up top, uncontested. They did this three or four times last night against the Brooklyn Nets. Um, this is, you know, not every team can do this. You're, you're not going to see every college team with a guy like Draymond Green who can, yes. you know, take the ball out of a trap and just throw it up to a guard. Who he's, can so de- he's so decisive with it once he gets it. I mean, he's just going. Exactly. So, uh, so okay. And, and so, so let's say, like, if this was a mortal offense with, like, you know, a right. normal guard out there, thirty-five feet from the basket that you're trapping. What's the goal here? Like, you're trying to harass him into a turnover. You're just trying to disrupt the timing. You're trying to to force a quick turnover or just get the ball out of his hands. A lot of the times, you'll see this when a guy gets really hot and he hits three or four or five shots in a row. Uh, maybe something uh, like Corey Sanders did to IU in the Big Ten tournament, <sighs> where a guy just catches absolute fire, and you're like, okay, we're just going to make someone else beat us. Yeah. And you want to get the ball out of their hands. So this is kind of a more extreme version of hedging in many ways where, you know, you bring the big man out. So you say, okay, instead of having him hedge and recover, we're just going to bring him all the way out and, and try to force a turnover while we're at it. And obviously it does force you into that, that tough situation because you're surrendering that four on three advantage. But at the very least you have the chance of forcing a turnover. And you're also not letting this, this guy who presumably if you're trapping him is unconscious you're not letting him just beat you over the top with threes. And most people don't have Draymond Green as the role man who can then take exactly. it and, and just kill you going down the lane. Yeah. So you can, you know, maybe force that big man into a turnover if he's not, you know, if it's if it's Deron Davis even, who's a pretty good passer, but you know, he's he's not a guy who's gonna take that one dribble on the run, throw the lob, not as as decisive a decision maker or as crisp a passer. Yeah. Man, Ben, good stuff as always. I'm learning a ton from these segments. I see all the comments in the chat from people who are too. So this, yeah, this continues to be good. I appreciate people listening. What um what do you want to cover next week or in the ones moving forward? I know we've kicked a few things around via email. You want to? I'll do leave some that off- up to you. You want to do some offense stuff next? Yeah, you know the the only my only reservation with that would be that we just don't have a, a big sample size yet on the current team. So I don't know that or there's may, like, or maybe, maybe we do some pack line. Maybe ne- maybe next yeah, week we'll just do a good, a good one to do. And then we'll have the scrimmage and opening opening okay. night and everything that we can dive into after that. All right, let's do that. Last question yeah. for you. What are you going to be watching for Thursday night? Oh man. Um, well, first of all, that what kind of defense they run. We've, 
you know, spent the last two weeks talking about pick and roll defense. So I'll be really interested to see that. And there's a team uh, with a couple of good shooters too. They got a couple of guys. We'll talk about this in the preview coming up, but they got a couple of guys who can, you know, 35, 36% from downtown. Yeah. So interesting to see how they handle that. Yeah. And then with, with the personnel, I'll also be interested to see who starts, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't think it's a sure thing that, you know, Deron Davis is in the starting lineup. I could very well see Evan Fitzner yeah. starting. Um, you know, I expect that Justin Smith to probably start. Obviously, you'll have Jawan and and Romeo Langford in there with presumably Devontae Green. But, you know, what does the point guard rotation look like? How many minutes will Rob Finnessy get now? And compare that to how many minutes he's getting in February. You know, um, so just kind of where these guys start in their rotation and when the, where we expect them to be at the end of the year. You know, I think Fitzner in particular is going to play a really big role for this team. I would start him if it were me, just because I think you need his floor spacing, uh, his his IQ. He seems, I mean, from the limited taste we got at Hoosier Hysteria, he seems like a guy who just knows what he's doing on the court. He looked really good in the dribble handoff game, you know, setting guys up, popping for three, just looked like he belonged. And so I'll be really interested to see how he fits with Indiana's best players. And then if Deron Davis isn't in that starting lineup, what kind of role does he play? You know, is, is he coming off the bench as the sixth man? Uh, is he kind of an anchor for those second units? I had a piece come out today about him kind of previewing his season. And, and I think he should come off the bench, not because he's a bad player, um, just because I think that the style that they'll play with their best players off the floor better suits his game. I think he'll have more touches available to him when he's not trying to share the ball with Romeo and Jawan. And you can yeah. just kind of maximize him a little bit better that way. So that's kind of the, I guess... The center, the starting center spot, and pick and roll coverage is is the, are the two biggest things that I'll be interested in. That's a great piece. That's it inside the hall in the player by player preview. Some really good analysis on Duran there. All right, Ben. Well, thank you, and uh, we uh, look forward to doing this again next week, man. This is, Looking forward to it. This is good stuff. Awesome. All righty. Coming up here, it is time for our first opponent preview of the season. Indiana plays an actual game on Thursday night, an exhibition against Southern Indiana. Just because it doesn't count doesn't mean we can't take it seriously, so we'll do a quick preview. Stick with us here on the Assembly Call. Welcome back to Banner Monday. Each week here in our final segment, we will dedicate it to previewing Indiana's upcoming opponent for that week. It's going to be on Monday, so, you know, for the Monday night game, typically the Tuesday night game. Not a ton of Monday or Wednesday games this year, but a lot of Tuesday games as usual. So we'll use this segment to preview uh, them. I'll try to have experts who probably know more about these teams than I do. But this week, Indiana plays its first and only public exhibition game against the Southern Indiana Screaming Eagles. And so we don't need to go too in-depth about it, but I just want to give you a few nuggets uh, so that you can take these into watching the game on Thursday night. And, of course, the game Thursday night, not on television, but it is on BTN+. Plus. So you need to get your BTN Plus account so that you can watch it. And we will, of course, have a post-game show immediately after it. It's like our warm-up. I think both Andy and Ryan uh, will be there. So, you know, we got to we gotta get a warm-up doing a post-game show. It's been a while. Man, since March 1st. And the last one we did was not fun. So certainly look forward to this one being a lot more fun uh, post-game show than that last one was. Uh, but Southern Indiana, they are in Division Two. They are in the Great Lakes Valley. And they were picked to finish fourth in their conference. So... They're not a great Division II team. You know, they're not like Bellarmine, who Indiana has played in the past, you know, one of the best teams in Division II. This is a little bit more of a middle-of-the-road, you know, type team in Division II. They do return three of their top six scorers from last season. 
and they're led by a couple of seniors. And, and, you know, so this is where if you're looking for, you know, what part of this team may challenge Indiana, I think it's the fact that they have a couple of guys in the backcourt on the wing who are good shooters. And we saw last year, you know, Indiana didn't always fare well against these types of teams. So they're led by their senior, Alex Stein. He's a 6'3 guard. He was a preseason honorable mention All-America for Division II. Last year, he averaged 17.5 points per game as a junior. He shot 38.6% from deep on, you know, a decent amount of attempts. So the guy's a good shooter. Uh, and interestingly, he shot 93.5% from the free throw line, and he made 54 free throws in a row last year, which is too shy of Jordan Hull's record of 56. So... Anytime you're in the same sentence as Jordan Holes, you can shoot the ball. So this guy can shoot it. He's experienced. You know, probably not going to be a guy that, you know, cowers in the moment at Simon Scott Assembly Hall, even though it'll be a big moment for him. So how does Indiana defend him? You know, they also return a senior in Nate Hansen, who's a 6'4 wing. He was their second leading scorer last year, 35.6% from downtown. You would certainly expect that Indiana will be better at defending, you know, backcourt wing players like this this year with, you know, with the added length that they have with a guy like Romeo Langford at 6'6", you know, who despite being a freshman is still going to be really difficult for these guys to deal with from an athletic ability perspective. But, you know, is Indiana, we, we know that Southern Indiana is going to want to get these guys three-pointers. How is Indiana's three-point defense? Are they closing out better? Or are they less prone to the breakdowns that really got them in trouble in some of their poor performances last year? You know, that's kind of the one thing when you look at this team that'll be, you know, kind of the matchup thing that you really want to see. I mean, Indiana's going to overwhelm them with talent and athletic ability and probably win the game by 40 or 50 points. But that's one of the things that I'm really going to be looking for is how do they defend these wing guys? Are they able to prevent them from getting the kind of looks downtown that they want, because that's not something that Indiana was always good at last year. Uh, they also return a sophomore, Emmanuel Little, who's a 6'6 forward. He's the tallest returnee. He was their fourth leading scorer last year. Just not a lot of size outside of that. They have a couple of newcomers, uh, 6'8", 250, Josh Price, 6'7", 273, Tyler Dancy. These are big, beefy guys. Neither one has really been you know, a super productive player. Uh, one, one guy transferred. Uh, another guy's a freshman. Neither one really, you know, has shown a lot of productivity. They have a transfer from Utah. Colby Caldwell also hasn't shown a lot of productivity. So, you know, not a whole lot else to go on outside of those top guys. But again, it's an exhibition game. You're at home. This is a game that you should dominate. But it'll be interesting to see how Indiana defends these guys. Um, and, you know, I think just your keys to watch. I think Ben hit on some of them. Um, you know, he kind of talked about Deron Davis starting. I'd be, I guess, and I don't really know anything, but I, I'd kind of be surprised if Deron plays. And and so I guess that will be interesting to watch because I really just don't, I don't feel like I have a very good idea of how ready he is. Like we've seen him in some of those practice videos, being out there, being active. It looks like, you know, kind of absorbing some contact and playing in some, you know, in some full contact type drills. But it'll be interesting to see. I mean, if he gets in there and plays, then we'll know that he's you know, kind of at a certain spot in his rehabilitation from the Achilles. And if he doesn't play at all, you know, that's obviously a sign that, you know, that he's not ready to get back out there because you would think at a minimum, if he's ready to go, you'd want him to get out there and get at least a three, four minute run in a game just to help him from a conditioning standpoint. So, you know, we'll see. And, you know, we'll see what the, you know, who, who is out there uh, from a guard perspective, you know, what just the starting lineup is. And then I think it'll be interesting to see where Archie goes first, on the bench, you know, not to say that the rotations that we're going to see in an exhibition game are going to be the same as, you know, the ones we'll see later in the season, but I think it will be, 
a good indication of, you know, who's practicing the best, who at this stage in the season has kind of positioned themselves atop the rotation, either to start or be one of the first few guys off the bench. And so it'll just be interesting to see if there's any surprises there. Guys are not expecting um, to be in there. But other than that, should be should be a fun night. I mean, I don't think any of us really care. Like, who, I mean, just from the reaction people had to watching the short Hoosier hysteria scrimmage, we don't really care who Indiana's playing at this point. We just want to see some action. We want a real game against somebody else that we saw with our own two eyes that we can react to. We're going to try our best on the postgame show not to overreact, but we're certainly going to have fun uh, talking about our first Indiana basketball game since March 1st. My goodness, it's been too long. So we look forward to it. We hope that you will join us. We will be live immediately following the game. Should be live on YouTube, Periscope, and Facebook. As always, YouTube is the best place to watch the game because you can hang out with the chat mob. Chat mobbers. Uh, and break it all down uh, there uh, in the chat on the post-game show. So uh, without any further ado, that'll do it here on this week's episode of Banner Monday. If you want to see us do the show live and be part of the live chat, Join us at assemblycall.com on Monday afternoons for the live broadcast of our Banner Monday recording. And you can always subscribe to our podcast by searching for Assembly Call wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, go to assemblycall.com or text IU to 66866 to join our free email newsletter, which will make you a smarter and more well-informed IU basketball fan. Thank you for listening. We'll be back to talk IU hoops again with you on Thursday night. Until then, keep your elbows in and your eyes on the rim. And go Hoosiers. Thank everybody for coming out. This was the most ridiculous ordeal of my life. Thank you for being here and for listening to this episode of The Assembly Call. We appreciate it. And we really do rely on the support of audience members like you to keep our show going and to keep growing. And so we have set up a page on our website at assemblycall.com slash support that lists five ways that you can support the Assembly Call. And we encourage you to choose whichever method is the easiest and most convenient for you. One of the methods is donating, and so many of you have donated, and we appreciate it so much. On that page, you can choose a monthly recurring donation or an annual recurring donation or just a one-time donation, whatever works for you. And if you don't want to donate... Another way to support the show is you can use our affiliate URLs, iutickets.shop or iustore.shop when you're going to shop for tickets or gear, and we will get paid a small commission when you use those links. But however you support the show, we appreciate it. Thank you. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 P5 Smart Bed is only $17.99. Save $600. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Sticky notes. Email alerts. A string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client.